Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we are bringing you our first update on habitat conditions for the 2021 breeding season, and I am very excited to report that we have on the line our favorite guest to help us cover this topic, Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. <laughs> okay. How'd you like that intro, Scott? That was that was perfect. You know, I've been asking for that as my walk-up music for the podcast for a while. So I'm glad you guys finally delivered. Yeah, we we've spent some time and figured it was it was worth doing this year. Frequent listeners will be very familiar with you and and yeah, we talked about that offline and so we finally made it happen and very deserving. So and and yeah, so thanks for joining us here for those that may not have heard you in the past and being have been introduced to you. You are with Ducks Unlimited Canada, if I remember this correctly, Director of Regional Operations for the Prairies and Boreal. Is my memory uh, on the mark there? It is. You got it right. All right. Well, like I said, we are going to be talking about uh, breeding habitat conditions as we are seeing them unfold right now. This is sort of the uh, early part of May. It's like May, I forget, I lose track of the days. What is it, May 11th, May 12th, something like that? May 11th. May 11th. And yeah, so I guess a quick update on some, some of the survey business that uh, I think most people have probably seen by now, there will not be another, there will not be a, uh, a breeding population survey this year. The, the waterfowl breeding population and habitat survey has been canceled for a second straight year. We are going to try to get uh, some representatives from the Fish and Wildlife Service on to help uh, to help explain some of that, what went into that decision this year. We're not going to talk a whole lot about that today. But what all of that means is that once again, we will be trying to bring a little bit of extra information to our listeners to keep them updated on the way things are unfolding. And unfortunately, this year, at least so far, we do not we are not going to be painting a rosy picture. Um, I think there have been quite a few reports circulating out there. People are probably becoming aware that we do have a, a pretty severe developing drought across the prairies. And so, well, Scott, we wanted to bring you in as the first person to report on this and ask you, I guess, just off Right off the start, what um, what have you have you been able to get out at all and kind of survey the landscape, or are you just kind of getting assessments from remote uh, from kind of remote data sources? What's what's been your ability to see the landscape so far this year? Yeah, I, I was able to get out. Um, you know, I, I had decided after uh, you know after being locked away for the better part of a year, it was time to get out once spring sprung up here, and so a couple weeks ago. I got out, just jumped in my truck, took a drive to Minnedosa, Manitoba, which is kind of a landscape that we do a lot of conservation work in, a lot of historic research in. It's a famous area for canvasback breeding. Um, and so, yeah, took a trip there. And yes, as as you described, the operative word was dry. Um, you know, I, I saw some information recently from Dr. Mike Anderson, who's been working in that landscape for I think he said close to 50 years mm-hmm. now. Yep. And uh, and he said, wasn't as dry as he's seen it during like 1989, but it's not far off from that. So we are we are definitely dry across the Canadian prairies here this year. Have you, uh, so you probably haven't been able to get into Saskatchewan at all or anything of that nature. We'll, we'll touch base with a few people over there, but um, uh, I guess 
what can you tell us in terms of what what the drought uh, indicators are saying? How widespread does this appear to be? And um, yeah, let's just start there. Yeah, so you're right. I haven't been able to go to Saskatchewan. Unfortunately, right now, if I were to go to Saskatchewan and cross the border, if I came back into Manitoba, I would be uh, sent into 14 days of quarantine and uh, not not wanting to head there. So yeah, right now I'm limited to Manitoba, but I have been able to pull up some data. Um, so just in preparation for our discussion, I pulled up some data on precipitation during the past year for Saskatoon. And um, the, the, the sort of monthly precipitation for the city of Saskatoon, I have those up just to orient folks. I'm going to give them to you in millimeters of precipitation. You can just think about 25 millimeters of precipitation equals one inch. So, um, you know, May, we're, we're early part of May and basically they've got no precipitation yet. That's not too surprising. April they ca- they measured 3.5 millimeters of precipitation. March was 1.3. Um, February was 1.2. January was nine millimeters. So, you know, in everything I've told you there, we haven't even got an inch of precipitation this spring. Um, so that that kind of, you know, gives you a little bit of context for what we're seeing. It's been dry. It's, you know, people are worried about crop crops growing and, you know, being able to produce crops this year. So yeah, thing, things are definitely dry. Scott, it's interesting that, that you pulled up some of that precipitation data. You and I had not talked about what type of information we were going to share on this podcast. We're just kind of freewheeling here today. But I had, as a result of some uh, some questions, internal conversations here over the past week, I, I actually had looked into precipitation data for the past year across multiple weather stations. It relates to some of kind of what they're doing to model pond numbers, uh, lacking breeding population and habitat survey data. And again, that's sort of, that's part of the conversation that we'll have with the Fish and Wildlife Service representative. But one of the things that they do and are doing now is modeling or estimating the number of ponds that are out there based on some precipitation metrics. And so I tried to kind of get a handle on where things are relative to some of their models. And if you basically, basically they look back over about the past year, cumulative precipitation across an average cumulative precipitation across a number of weather stations there in Prairie Canada. And if my mathematics here are correct, which is always suspect, but if they're, if they're correct, (laughs) if we're correct right now, we're running, uh, we're running it, not too far off the low mark um, over the period right. 1961 all the way up to current. So we're we're not at record low. That that again is is sort of borne out and consistent with what Dr. Mike Anderson observed for southwestern Manitoba. We're definitely in that bottom 10, 20, you know, percentile. Uh, it's not looking good up there right now in terms of you know how widespread and how dry it is. I, I had not thought uh, much about implications for crop uh, crop production, Scott. And so is that a real concern? Is soil moisture so low that that producers may forego a crop this year? How does all that work when when we get to this type of situation? Yeah, good good question. I'll, I'll be on shaky ground trying to put put my head into the, the brain of a farmer, but I'll, I'll give it a shot anyway. Okay. I'm never scared, n- never scared of doing that. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, what I, what I understand is, you know, they, they, when they make decisions about planting, you know, that's, 
a big chunk of the input costs and their expenses for the year. So, you know, everybody's kind of looking at it and saying, boy, you know, we've got to kind of plant betting that there will be some rain to cause germination and, you know, give enough precipitation for the crops to grow. But, you know, it's heavily weighted where all the expenses up front for them, not all of it, a big chunk of it is up front. So, yeah, I, I think guys are are sort of weighing that. You know, I, I've seen lots of people in the field, so people are definitely planting crops. Um, but, you know, they're, they're in the boat where they're definitely saying, yeah, we've, we've got to have conditions change for that to be viable. Um, you know, I guess the alternative is, you know, it's kind of like if you don't plant the crop, you know, you're not going to get a crop, right? So, you know, no, no risk, no reward. But um, I, I pulled up another map on drought conditions that ran through the end of April and uh, I'll share this with you and you can you can post it on social media when you put the podcast up. OK, so but um, yeah, when I look at it all across, well, to, to orient folks, they have sort of um, five levels of drought. So they have different colors, but they call them D4, D3, D2, D1 and D0. Um and across much of southwestern Manitoba, the, the Pottle region, we're in D3. So not the most extreme drought, but only one category up from that. That continues on into southern Saskatchewan. Um, you know, eastern Saskatchewan is in D2. Um, sort of central Saskatchewan is in kind of D1. And then in Alberta, they're in D0 for the most part. So it's it's interesting in that you know, typically we're drier further west. Alberta would normally be drier than Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and those are kind of reversed this year. So it it is an interesting trend. Scott, one thing that I'll add to this is that we are, uh, you've talked mostly about prairie uh, Canada, prairie conditions in Canada, but we're, we are seeing a drought develop on the U.S. side of the border in the U.S. prairies as well, which is a contrast to last year uh, as well. So this is setting up to be a situation that, um, that, you know, quite honestly, a lot of our younger waterfowl supporters and waterfowl hunters have not, have not seen. In the past, we've gone through some drought. Uh, and, and when I say in the past, I'm talking recent past. We've gone through some periods, some years where we've had some fairly severe droughts in part of the prairies. But there were other portions, other regions of the prairies that seemed to be holding on and, and had, you know, average or better conditions. So we didn't have not had in recent memory a year where we have fairly widespread drought across nearly, well, a significant portion of the prairies. So right. what do you, what do we, how do we process that? What did it mean when you think about that? Here we have this year where the drought is developing across such a large landscape. What do you what do you tell hunters? What do you tell our supporters with regard to that? Yeah, maybe, maybe where I'll start is um, you know as as folks trained in science, we always go back to data, and you know we have some cool maps that I know you've seen, Mike, that show the water moving you know across the prairies, and in many years it can be both in the US and Canada. And some years it's in one, some years it's in another. And you're right, not very often do we end up where there's kind of not much water anywhere across the prairies, but that that is what we are set up to have this year. Um, we, we know what happens in years like this is that when it's dry, many of the birds that would normally nest in the prairies, they overfly and sort of the relief valve is the boreal forest. Um, now, 
typically we think about that. There's lots of habitat up there. It's just typically less productive. Just the soils are less productive. Um, so, you know, we're probably able to, to hatch nests up there. The question is, you know, do you, do, are the birds able to find enough food to, to get birds fledged and, you know, in good condition and on the wing? Um, but, you know, typically when we see that overflight, we see lower overall production. So, you know, I, I would say for hunters, yeah, that you're right. There are many of them who've, we've not seen these kind of conditions. So, you know, duck numbers will be down, you know, there's no question about that, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't have stellar hunting opportunities, um, you know, locally throughout the flyways, um, you know, depending on the local conditions as birds come south. One of the things that I wanted to mention in regard to that was your reference to the boreal wetlands being a little bit less productive. And so you sort of alluded to it, but to put a finer point on it, when we say less productive wetlands, we're, we're primarily, we think we're primarily talking about lack or lower productivity in terms of the invertebrates that the ducklings need and, and maybe that the hens need in order to uh, to produce a, a clutch of eggs, but certainly on the duckling side of things, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. They're not as productive in terms of the foods they're providing to the ducklings and enabling them to to survive, to, to fledge. Is, is that what we're thinking? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, but really it's, you know, I would say it goes to overall productivity of the system and and that's probably driven by the soil. You know, as we get in some of those northern boreal areas, the soil is is pretty thin, you know, and and if we think just within the prairies, we see variation in that too. You know, probably if you go to sort of the southeastern portion of the historic pottle region in places like Iowa, super rich dark soils there that were probably highly productive. Um, you know, much of that was converted to agriculture. So, you know, we only have a few remnants there, but boy, when you have good conditions there, there's an explosion of that productivity, you know, in the plants, in the invertebrates. And, and when you move to the boreal with thinner soils, you know, you kind of have the opposite of that. We have just lower productivity of the system overall. That pattern of greater productivity and its intersection with wetlands is consistent across the continent. You think about some of the areas that are most productive for waterfowl and wetlands and the foods that are produced out of those wetlands across all regions of the U.S. And you think about those areas that are also highly productive for agriculture, the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, Central Valley of California, very rich soils. So there's definitely some connections there to the soil and their productivity and how that relates to the productivity of the wetlands and all the resources they provide. You know, one of the things that I, I believe we're going to find ourselves doing this gives us this year gives us a great opportunity for this is to share more of what we know about how these prairie wetland systems work in terms of the drought cycle. The drought cycle is something that we talk about often within uh, the waterfowl within the waterfowl profession and how it affects wetland productivity, as you've talked about, and then how waterfowl respond to that and. And particularly important this year, as I've said, because there are many of our hunters and supporters that have never gone through this. And as we talk about a very severe drought that's developing across a lot of the prairie, some people may naturally kind of worry a bit about waterfowl populations and, and what it's going to mean. And, and I, I think one of our jobs is to try to educate and bring data to the conversation and say, hey, this is the most well-managed group of birds on the planet. We probably know more about this group of, of, of birds and organisms than any other that you could point to across across the planet. We, we have a really good understanding of their ecology. 
of their population dynamics and, and tremendous monitoring systems in place, you know, save the last couple of years where we've had to forego the, the breeding population and habitat survey. But that long-term data stream nevertheless allows us to look, even with two years of, of missing data, to know that that populations are still really healthy. If you look into the, the report that the Fish and Wildlife Service produced last year, where they estimated what the spring breeding population would have been last year for, because uh, they had to do that in order to set harvest regulations. They estimated that their models predicted 9 million mallards in the breeding population in the, in the mid-continent. We're talking about, you know, the, the, the mid-continent, not the western mallards and not eastern mallards, but just the mid-continent. Still 9 million mallards. And we know there are many other species right. that are also still doing, doing healthy. Now, there, we also know there's going to be low productivity this year. And uh, that's, that's obviously going to have right. some in, impacts on what hunters observe and, and success in the blind. But, um, but yeah, I, I, think, I think this is an opportunity for us to share what we know and, and kind of help uh, say this is going to be a bit of a rough patch, but populations are going to be fine. And, and then once the drought uh, breaks and, and, and precipitation returns, productivity increases, then, then we can be optimistic again. Do you, do you agree, Scott, that we're going to have an opportunity to tell that story? Yeah, I, I think that is important. You know, when when I look at these things, I know sometimes we get questions about, oh wow, you know, are we are we worried that the ducks won't come back? And you know, they're they're sort of some people are pretty alarmed when they see these kind of reports. Uh, I am not. You know, there there were questions like that when we went through a big drought in the '80s, and you know, there were scientists wrote papers on that. You know, will mallards come back after we get water again? And those were probably legitimate questions at the time. But I think the answer that we got is absolutely, as long as we maintain the habitat base, when the water comes back, you know, the wetlands hold water, the ducks take advantage quickly, they get out in front of predator communities and they boom, you know, during those initial years when you get wet. So, you know, maybe the analogy that I would draw is, you know, you might think of it kind of like the stock market where there are times where you have a big drop. But usually after those big drops, it sets the stage for another growth phase. And, and that's what we see in the prairies too. these alternating periods of, yep, growth, and then it flattens out. And then we have to have a correction, if you will. And then we see that growth again. Well, uh, your reference to the stock market is timely because here we sit on May 11th and I've, uh, if I, I do believe we had a pretty big drop today. So, <laughs> so okay. I hope your forecast is correct. But uh, yeah, uh, th that's a good way of, of putting it there, Scott. But hey, before I did want to get your thoughts, get some assessment from you on where we are relative to the unfolding of the breeding season, like where the progression of the breeding season, which species are we seeing, which species are actively nesting, which species are just showing up. And, you know, kind of for those that may not understand or, or, or yeah, have a good feel for the progression of laying across different species. Where are we in that at this time of the year? Yeah. So, you know, May 11th, um, early nesting birds like mallards and pintails have had eggs on the ground for a while, probably, you know, in mid-April. And and we, we had an early spring here, so could have even been early April uh, across many parts of the Canadian prairies. Um, but, but other species are starting to kick in and nest now too. So blue winged teal and shovelers and, uh, 
you know, there, there's a whole whole suite of the waterfowl community that's just getting either just starting nesting or, or we'll be here in a little bit. So they're just beginning to lay eggs um, and getting going. So, you know, we we're, we probably could be get close, getting close to having some of those early nesting species, having some of the first hatch nests. You know, that's that's the other challenge with drought is if the birds are successful and, you know, in hatching a nest, they may have trouble finding suitable brood water that is maintained and provide those invertebrate resources for the ducklings. But yeah, things things are moving along. We will just see much lower densities because of the drought and and ultimately lower reproductive success. So fewer ducklings fledged. Yeah, fewer ducklings fledged as a result, uh, partly of what you're talking about there. Even if they hatch uh, their first nest, there's probably going to be lower duckling survival. Well, our, our data tell us that, yeah, duckling survival yeah. is going to be higher in landscapes where you have more wetlands. And so naturally drought is going to make that more challenging. But then also there's right. going to be, unless we get some rain here going forward enough to start filling some of those basins, we're going to see fewer re-nest attempts, which also is going to cut into some of the uh, productivity potential. So uh, yeah, the, these things are all pointing to a year where we're going to have uh, some pretty low uh, production. You know, if you wanted to find a silver lining to that, probably what it's going to mean is lower uh, hen mortality because that's one of the things that we see. The greater the nesting intensity, the higher the hen mortality because naturally uh, the nesting season and nesting activity is one of the periods of greatest risk and, and mortality for those hens. And so that's something that's been demonstrated a few times. So that's something also to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. Um, you know, so what I think might be top of mind for hunters is, you know, what, what should they expect in the fall? You know, we talked about smaller populations, you know, fewer birds, but I would also say, you know, it's definitely going to put us in a position where more of the population that you're seeing is going to be adult birds. So, you know, it, that will create challenges. You know, adult birds do not behave like young birds that it's their first trip down the flyway. They'll be, um, you know, how would I put it? Ill-behaved. Yeah. You know, there are those <laughs> days, there are those days that you say, man, the mallards were just not behaving for us, you know, or, or whatever species you're chasing. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid to suggest that there will be a bunch of those days where you go, gosh, couldn't get things right. And it's like, yep. The ducks that you're dealing with have have played the game before most of them have, and and it will be challenging out there. Yep, that's right. Uh, so one of the other things, or a couple of things here as we start to close out, Scott, I'll give you a chance to offer any final comments here in just a moment. But uh, I think, well, let me ask you this. Let me throw it to you for this. You mentioned the boreal uh, forest has sort of the safety net. is especially important in a year like this. What are you seeing in terms of precipitation maps, precipitation indices that would give us an idea of the habitat conditions in the boreals? Pretty good. I mean, I know they don't fluctuate very much, but safe to say we're in uh, reasonable shape there? Yeah, I, I think so. It, it is a more stable system overall. You know, there there is variation, but it's just much less pronounced variation than we see in the prairies. So, yeah, there will be there will be resources for birds to take advantage of the up there. So, you know, some will nest and successfully raise young. It will just not be like if we have the prairies wet and in full production. So that that's the challenge that we have. Final comment I make here before uh, handing it off to you for final comments, Scott, and, I, and I'm sure I will mention this half a dozen or more times over the course of the summer, uh, well, summer and then into the fall, is that as we think about drought and as, hear, as people hear us talk about drought, I'll constantly remind folks, remind us all that 
the the hunting regulations in the U.S. Well, and I guess for Canada too, because Canada is on a, like a three year rotation, set the regulations for three years on a running basis. I believe um, the hunting regulations in the states for the 21-22 hunting season are already set. There, uh, I'm not, I'm right. not going to even attempt to run down through them, but it's it's liberal packages. I think are are the general rule. I'll pretty pretty similar to, if not exactly the similar to what we saw last year. We can talk about that on a subsequent episode, but just want to remind and reassure folks that the drought that we're talking about right now is not going to influence harvest regulations for the 21-22 hunting season. Those were set based on observations and projections from last year. Right, Scott? Yeah, that's correct. Well, uh, any final comments from you, Scott? I know this will not be the last time we talk with you. We'll check in with you periodically. And, and there's only so many ways and times that we can describe how dry it is. But, but anything that right. you wanted to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I, I guess I would just say, you know, that that really the focus that we have when we think about maintaining healthy populations is on that habitat base. And, you know, so work that we're doing this year you know, in protecting wetlands and restoring uplands and those kind of things may not, we may not see the fruits of that labor this year just because the water's not there. But, you know, when the water does come back, like we know it will, that's when the habitat work that, that we stay focused on will, will bear fruit. And, and we know that's really the critical thing to maintain the populations in the long term. So, you know, I, I'd tell people to hang in there. There will be some lean years, um, but, you know, before you know it, we'll get that wet period back and, you know, we can have those spectacular populations again. That's right. And if anybody been paying attention over the past five or 10 years, we've been saying, everybody's been saying, we will have these years sometime that, that we're going to have a year or two where we have some extreme drought. And it looks like, uh, looks like we may be staring at one of those. So, yeah, not necessarily unexpected in the grand scheme of things. A little bit of pain comes with it. But, yeah, let's look forward to brighter days ahead. Scott, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, look forward to catching up with you again in the future. And what I'll say to our to our listeners, if you have any questions about this particular topic as it relates to this drought, uh, how does DU respond to that? How does, you know, what's the, what does it mean big picture or even in a, if you have any questions about this, this topic, send those in to us and, uh, and yeah, we'd be happy to take those. So Scott, thanks for joining us here. Yeah. Happy to be a part of it, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Stevens. We always appreciate his insight on breeding habitat conditions up in the prairies. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work he does on every aspect of this podcast. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time and spending it with us. We thank you for your questions and interactions, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.